especially in the environment that we live in in our world today. Uh, According to his website, this man preached to live audiences of upwards of 210 million people. He was a spiritual advisor to 11 U.S. presidents from 1945 until 2017. He operated a variety of media and publishing outlets. And according to his staff, more than 3.2 million people responded to the invitation to accept Christ as their Savior. As of 2008, he estimated, his estimated lifetime audience, including radio and television broadcast, topped 2.2 billion people. One special televised broadcast that was done by satellite alone reached an audience of approximately 2.5 billion people. Because of his crusades, he has preached the simple message of the gospel to more people in person than any other person in history. From the time of his ministry that began in 1947, he conducted more than 400 crusades in 185 countries and territories over six continents. And his first crusade was held in September 1947 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where 6,000 people attended. He preached the gospel simply and with authority. The people who came forward were called inquirers and were given a chance to speak a one-on-one with a counselor to clarify what their walk forward meant and answer any questions and pray. And the inquirers were often given a the copy of the Gospel of John or a Bible or both. In 1992, in Moscow, one quarter of the 155,000 people in attendance came forward as the song Just As I Am played. By now, you've guessed the person that I'm talking about, William Franklin Graham. On February 28th, uh, excuse me, on February 28th, Graham became the fourth private citizen in the United States and the first religious person to lie in honor upon his death in the United States Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. Mitch McConnell, the Speaker of the House at the time, and Paul Ryan called Graham America's pastor. President Donald Trump said Graham was an ambassador for Christ. And a private funeral was held in his home there in South Carolina. And Billy was buried beside his wife at the foot of the cross shaped in bricks in their prayer garden. And he was buried in a pine box, handcrafted in 2006 by some inmates at Louisiana State Penitentiary, and was topped with a handmade wooden cross nailed to it by those prisoners. This message has remained the same and has remained the most influential, influential message in the history of, the, of our world. This message has not only been life-changing for individuals, but it has affected various governments, cultures, and societies. And this morning, we will be looking at how this message was received and rejected. We will see how people respond and what our resolve should be. Lord, we thank you this morning that the power of your word speaks. Not my words, Lord, but yours would go forth. Be blessed through the power of your spirit. That, Father, those hearing these words would be encouraged this morning. And, Father, that you will lay upon their hearts the importance of this message, as you did for me. 
So I thank you, Father, for this time. And look to you now, Lord, as you guide us through your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, this is the first time since Peter gave his historic sermon in Acts 2 that we see Paul presenting the same message once again to the Jewish people. In the first part of Acts 13, he reminds them of their history, as Peter did. He presents the lineage through which the Messiah was born, and he confronts them with the reality of who Jesus was and is. It was the same message that Peter preached earlier in chapter 2 that started this new body of believers called the church. And it will be the same message that Paul would preach throughout his ministry. It became an offense to the law, and if the Jewish leaders would accept this simple truth, then what would become of their office? Their office as chief religious icons, the leaders of their day. What authority would they have? Or in their minds, what authority would they lose? What would happen to the power they so diligently protected and asserted? What would happen to the security of their closed society? These are all questions that threatened their very existence, so they thought. In Romans 1.16, a familiar verse, Paul describes this gospel, this good news, as the power of God unto salvation. Many of us have heard this, that the word dunamis is the same word from which we get our word dynamite. It was an explosive message, one that would dramatically alter the landscape in which it was released. The power, the dunamis of this message would change history itself. This gospel message confronts all humanity, first with the law and judgment, then with the grace of God through Christ for redemption and salvation. Whether you agree or you disagree, whether you accept it or reject it, this message demands response, one way or another. You will either become a passionate embracer of the gospel, a passionate rejecter of the gospel, or you will be a neutral spectator of the gospel. And as John wrote in Revelations 3, lukewarm. However, you cannot be lukewarm when it comes to this message of forgiveness and redemption. We all must and will respond, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. In these few verses this morning, we will be witness to the impact of the words preached by Paul, both positively and negatively, both accepted and rejected, embraced or driven away. How could this new message compare to thousands of years of the law in all its traditions? Paul and Barnabas would find themselves loved and hated within the same city, within the same neighborhood, and within the same day. They were not concerned about their own personality or their own personal rejection. However, they would not compromise what the Spirit had called them to. And when you have God on your side, empowered by the Spirit, you have nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of. In the last 10 verses in chapter 13 is where our message will be we will see that the gospel became the message for all. 
Romans 1.16, again, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Matthew 28.16, the Great Commission says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel message was to be first for Israel, God's chosen nation from the beginning of time. God had appointed Israel as the nation through which the Messiah would come, the Savior of the world. It was His sovereign choice that the Jewish nation would hear this message first. But by their rejection, He fulfilled another promise, that His life, death, and resurrection would be for all who would believe. And as we will see, there were many ways in which people will respond. At the end of this morning, you will be challenged in how should you respond. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 13, as we look and have an overview look of the text that we're going to be covering, but we need some background to set up our text this morning. Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to go through this in a chronological way, not verse by verse, but just follow along with me. What Luke has so carefully written down for us here in this book of Acts is the result of Paul's preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. As was typical for Paul, he began his ministry in Antioch by preaching in the synagogue before an audience of Jews and Gentile God-fearers. And these God-fearers were Gentiles who believed in God of Israel, but not fully converted to Judaism. They were permitted to attend the, the synagogue, but were never allowed to participate in the worship of God. They were allowed to simply observe because they were outsiders in comparison to the people of God. After the typical prayers and scripture readings, Paul was taken by the leaders of the synagogue. If he had a word of exhortation for the people, they would ask him to expand. Of course, Paul never turning down an opportunity to preach the gospel, so he stood up before the people and delivered a sermon to them. That sermon is contained in verses 16 through 41 of Acts 13. And after that, the synagogue service let out. As they left the synagogue, people began begging Paul and Barnabas to speak out about these things on the next Sabbath. What are these things they were referring to? It was the sermon that Paul was preaching. Paul began by recounting the history of Israel. He was recounting the work of God on behalf of Israel, and by doing so, he is describing the character of God. In verses 17, he talks about God's sovereignty over all things. He is the God of salvation. Verse 18, God is a patient God. In verse 19, God is a just God. He will not let sin go unpunished. In verse 22, God leads His people providing protection and guidance. 
In verse 23, He is the God who makes promises and keeps them. He made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. Paul also makes it very clear that all these promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Verses 23 through 39. He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He lived a righteous life on our behalf. He died upon a cross for our sins. He was buried in a tomb. But God raised Him on the third day from the dead, demonstrating who He was. This was the heart of the message Paul preached. And he called all of his hearers to respond to this message by trusting in Christ. Because through Him, God offers the forgiveness of sins and justification. Verses 38-39. through 39. However, Paul warns his hearers in verse 40 and 41. And he says, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So now we begin in verse 42, and I'll read as you, watch, as you read along. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the words of, of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women in high standing, of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Incredible set of verses. Verses 42 and 43, at the conclusion of Paul's sermon, as they began to leave the synagogue, they were met with two different responses. One from the offended Jewish leaders inside the temple, and the other from an eager audience of Gentiles outside the temple. They were surrounded by a crowd of people that were so eager that they begged Paul that the words that were just spoken would be preached on the next Sabbath to them. They wanted a chance to respond to that same message that was just presented to the Jewish leaders in the Jewish synagogue. They were willing to wait even until the next Sabbath to hear the words of freedom and redemption. Could you imagine yourself talking with somebody or a group of people 
that all of a sudden got to the edge of their seat and were hanging on every word that you were speaking? That's how these people were. They had heard something they've never heard before. And they were eager. They were begging Paul, please tell us more. Paul's sermon brought the word of salvation to the Jews and the God-fearers or prostitutes, but really had not taken notice of the Gentiles. The word begged or besought has the idea of an imploring desire, a hands and knees request, a pleading to be told with an attitude to respond. They just wanted a chance. I believe that their answer was already determined in each one of their hearts by the evidence of their pleading. What did this message have that they were so determined to hear and commit to? Well, maybe it was forgiveness of sin. Maybe it was a new hope for a living. Maybe it was an attitude of community. Maybe it was the reality of a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Maybe it was the promise of redemption. Maybe it was the guarantee of eternal life in God's kingdom. The simplicity of the gospel is what people need to hear. The simple presentation of God's love, of our sinfulness, God's forgiveness, His grace and redemption is the first point here, the grace of the gospel. In Acts 20, 24, it says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Titus 3, 5-8 through 8 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by, his, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's real hope. In a society and world we live in, there's a lot of hopelessness. We have words of hope. Not our own words, but the words that God gave us. That's the most powerful word we can ever have. That's what the Gentiles were hearing. That's what they wanted to respond to. That's what they were begging Paul to speak to them again about. They wanted more understanding, more exposure to this new truth. And if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody that is eager to hear, not for debating purposes, but truly their heart's desire, they want to know what about this message is so magical, so to speak. And when you have a true seeker instead of a debater, there's joy in when you're sharing. There's an excitement. It's kind of ironic to see the two attitudes here that are developing. Those who wanted to hear the word over and over, those so-called religious leaders, and the ones who didn't want to hear it even one time. The more they heard it, the more angry they became. Paul and Barnabas encouraged and exhorted those that followed to lay hold of God's grace and continue in it. 
laying hold of God's grace in simple terms in this verse means to hold on to what you already understand. This perseverance would be the mark of true faith. What is grace? Many of us have heard the definition of grace. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve, what we can't attain, no matter how hard we try. It's a gift given by God through His love, a sacrificial gift on our behalf. Romans 5.10 says it this way, For if while we were still enemies or sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear what? The words of Paul? No, it says the Word of God. There was a buzz about the city concerning this new message that was being preached. So much so that the entire city was now getting involved. What We could assume that Paul and Barnabas were not idle throughout the week prior to this Sabbath day. They might have met with individuals or small groups in their homes. These people who truly wanted to hear the gospel and therefore continued to create this mass gathering. Who were some of these people? Maybe they were bystanders waiting to see what the Jewish leaders would do in such an overwhelming crowd. Maybe they had nothing else to do but got carried away in all the excitement. Maybe they were coming coming because it was the thing to do. Or maybe there were those who couldn't wait to hear more of God's Word. Why do we come here every Sunday? Why do we gather on Wednesday nights for a Bible study? Why do we have prayer meetings on Tuesdays or Thursdays and women's and men's functions? Just to come together? That's part of it. That's part of the fellowship. But it's all centered around God's Word. It's all centered around equipping us. Giving us a strength in our faith. Helping us in a practical way. That's why we come together. So in point one, the power of grace of the gospel is God's love opens a heart to hear the words of truth. God's forgiveness frees a heart to repent and turn towards God. And God's redemption brings new life to that heart. However, verses 45 and 46, we now see the opposition raising its ugly head in the resistance of the gospel. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." John 12, 47, 48 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects, rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The world that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The Jewish leaders were enraged at this. Not only would they not receive the gospel themselves, 
but they were filled with anger at those who were crowding after it. Here, they were expressing two kinds of indignation. An open indignation and an obstinate indignation. In an open indignation, they were publicly announcing their contempt for Christ and His teachings. Remember, Paul was not teaching a new doctrine. He was repeating what the Spirit had already revealed to him and continued to reveal to him and repeating what Christ had already said both from the Old Testament and before his death and after his resurrection. This was truly God's word, however. The opposition began to influence the crowd in deceptive ways, to ignore the truth and confuse and manipulate them to reject what Paul was saying. Not too much different than what we experience today in the deception and manipulation of the gospel. The obstinate indignation is meant when they went out from the synagogue not only, not only to show that they did not believe the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, but also that they would not believe the gospel. And they fled from the hearing range of Paul's voice so that they might avoid the possibility of, of accepting any of the gospel that may cause them to leave their long-held traditions, their power, and their influence. And because of these responses, the gospel would become universal. The Jewish leaders were not rejecting Paul's word, but as I said before, God's word. Look at verse 44, the word of God. Verse 46, the word of God. Verse 48, the word of God. Verse 49, the word of God. Luke makes it very clear that it was God's word that people were rejecting a far greater problem than rejecting man's words. They responded as humanity usually does, with jealousy. They saw the crowds that Paul was attracting and could see how it might encourage Paul to assume some sort of position. They were envious that by Paul's simple language, it was creating more of a stir than all of their self-promoting wisdom and empty eloquence and man-made traditions they had ever created. It was with pride. Their egos were at risk. They knew if they couldn't success successfully discredit Paul's teachings that they would possibly lose their power and prominence. And then they became angry and hostile. But when we read that these men were filled with envy contradictions and blasphemy those are pretty harsh descriptive words of the words towards Paul the hate but not of Paul but of God's word some of the same attitudes they had when falsely accusing Jesus just before he was condemned to death unfortunately some people's hearts will never change notice the digression of the attitudes here first you have envy Jealousy, resentment, and bitterness. Secondly, contradiction. Opposition, defiance, denial. Revile and blasphemy against cursing God, blatantly rejecting and insults. And lastly, the final penalty, judgment. By rejecting 
all those things, they were judging themselves without even knowing it. Almost an identical replay of the mock trial that Jesus endured when they falsely accused him before he was put to death. Thirdly, we have the glory of the gospel. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 12-14 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the glory of the gospel. Verses 47 through 49. For so the Lord has commended us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying, what? The word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. Paul and Barnabas grew bold, more bold than ever before. They started out presenting the gospel in a practical and fluid way. But as the opposition grew and the arrogant rejection became increasingly hostile, they felt that it was now time to be extremely clear and direct. As all good preachers, Paul began to instruct with meekness, but continued with clarity and direction. Now don't be fooled, meekness is not a weakness. Meekness is speaking with authority, tempered by grace. It's not timid, it's just the opposite. However, when the adversaries of Christ's cause began to be daring in their contempt, there is a time to become more bold and to make it completely clear what the real issue of their opposition is. Opposition to the gospel should not frighten us, scare us, have us running for the hills. It should embolden us, for we know that the good news truly is, and if we are empowered by the Spirit of God, and if we are filled with the Spirit of God and led by the Spirit of God, nothing will stand in our way. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Now that Paul and Barnabas have made a fair offer to the Jews, they now serve notice as to what their rejection will cause. Verse 46 says judgment. They have now judged themselves out of the kingdom. They have rendered themselves unworthy. They have ignored the truth and grace of God and now face the consequences of their hardened hearts. Paul does not mince any words here. He is direct and to the point. He tried to help them understand the grace that God had for them, but because of their hardness, they have ultimately sentenced themselves to death, eternal death. Because of their rejection, Paul will now turn to the Gentiles, a nation of non-believers, heathens, pagans, people who are in desperate need of hope and salvation, people who were longing for the message to be preached to them so that they might respond to God's word. And finally, after all that had taken place, those who were seeking outside the temple will now be given access into the Holy of Holies. The curtain has been torn and access has been given. Those who were begging Paul to continue in his preaching so that they might have this forgiveness and redemption 
are eagerly awaiting Paul's decision. And at the end of verse 47, they hear what they have longed for all along. That the Gentiles now were being included in this plan of salvation. This new life, this new eternal life in Christ. Repeat in verse 47 here. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. These Gentiles were spiritually receptive to God's word. It was truly good news to them that they might have admission into this covenant and communion with God by a clearer, nearer, and better way than submitting to the ceremonial law and traditions that the other religions gave. The partition wall has been taken down, and they were now being welcomed into the benefits of the Messiah's kingdom without being under the yoke of the law. I love what it says that they were excited, glad, overjoyed, ecstatic. So much so they began to do what? Glorify Paul? Barnabas? No. Glorify the Word of God. Because that's where the dunamis is. That's where the power is. That's where the dynamite is. The more they embraced God's Word, the more they realized what gift they had been given. The more they trusted God's Word, the more they believed in God's provision. What a time of celebration. In talking with many of you over the years, many of us have gone through various trials in our lives. And when somebody helps you through a process, gives you God's words, God's strength, God's power, boy, what does that do for your faith? It strengthens it. It gives you security. It takes the fear and anxiety away. That's what the power of God's word does in each one of our lives. You can look back 10 years ago. And if you haven't matured in 10 years, then there's something amiss. But I think most of us in this room can look back 10 years ago where our faith was then and where it is today and just praise God for the difficult things that He's allowed in our lives to get us from that point to this point. And there's a promise. He's not finished with us yet. He's not finished. Why is it so important? One commentary states it this way. Oh, what a light, what a power, what a treasure does this gospel bring along. How excellent are its truths, its promises, its precepts. How far transcending is it to all other philosophies and institutions and wisdom of this world. Many of us are familiar with Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, being altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. 
By them indeed your servant is warned, and keeping them is great reward. Every one of those verses is talking about God's word. Every one. And what effect God's word has. How many Bibles do we have in our houses, on our shelves? There are some in this world that are just hungering for one page. The Gentiles hungered just for this simple truth. And when they received it, they gave glory to the author of that word. Not the messenger, but the writer. Paul would have have it no other way. There's no way Paul would accept any glory, any praise for who he was, but for the word of God that he was bringing. One of the great things about God's sovereignty, as he talked about, that he says in verse 48, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. John 6.65 says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted or drawn by the Father. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Through this He called you through our Gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's Word continues to assure us that His eternal life is a gift provided by Him to us. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't acquire it by any other way than the way God has designed it. In God's infinite wisdom, He prepared the hearts of those who will believe. In Romans 8.30, Paul again writes that those who were predestined He also called. Some may say then, if that's true, then why do we have to share the gospel with anybody? Well, if that was the case, why are Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel? As Paul and Barnabas continued to preach Christ, the Holy Spirit began His work in those who would believe. As soon as they believed, they began to spread the word of hope throughout the region. They began preaching the simple good news of the gospel to any who would listen, as they themselves had lo- have done. A limited understanding with a limitless joy and an eternal security. In these verses, we do not see any miraculous signs to confirm their teachings in order to convince people of the truth of it. God, however, allowed the conviction of His Word through the power of the Spirit to transform people's hearts. This changed lives became the evidence of the reality of this Gospel. How were you before you finally came to an understanding 
of Christ in your own life? How many of us in this room had checkered pasts that probably would be embarrassed to talk about? But what God did with that life and totally transformed it, made it new, that's the dunamis. That's the power. Our fourth point here is the rejection of the gospel in verses 50 through 51. John 3.18 and 19 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Verse 50 and 51. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raising up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. Again, we see the deception of the religious hierarchy by influencing the prominent men and women of their community. After all, they were just so-called holy men, given great deals of importance. But these men and women of reputation, they had some political pull in this region. They were deceptive in their understanding. And then openly persecution and persecuted Paul and Barnabas. It always fascinates me that when religious factions are unsuccessful in their opposition to the gospel, politics usually takes up their lead by people with worldly prominence, famous names, people that have been personified and put on pedestals to give them some prominence. And then all of a sudden people are attracted to that, thinking that because of who they are, what they're saying has got to be true, got to be real. Furthest thing from the truth. The followers grew larger and more loyal to Paul and Barnabas rather than their commitment or, and the commitment of, to God's word. The worst thing was happening since the arrival of Paul and Barnabas. People were leaving the traditions, the religion. They were grasping on to new life, something they have never had before. However, in the leader's foolishness, They thought if they banished these men from the city, that everything would come back to normal. The problem was that they were trying to stand against a supernatural spirit of God in their own natural strength. They had no idea that fanning this fire would blow it out of control, would perpetuate its growth, and spread throughout the world as we know it. The church grows in quantity and quality in times of persecution. Throughout history, you can see that. We see many great fathers of the church that Dave has put in Bibles. The persecution that they endured fanned the fire of the gospel. Amazing. This shaking off the dust of one's foot, this was a custom a gesture of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jews identifying that the town they were leaving is a pagan town. Matthew 10, 14, 
Mark 6.11 and Luke 9.5, Jesus makes a point and reminds them that these whom they were leaving were not receptive to this life-changing message given by Paul and Barnabas. It was a symbol of cleansing themselves from the impurity of sin and the sinners who would not worship God. For these Jewish men to do this in front of the Jewish leaders as they left the city through the gate was a clear way of stating that because of their rejection of the gospel, not only were they considered pagans, but more importantly, they were no longer part of Israel and were no better than the unbelieving Gentiles they themselves were persecuting. But the final verse sums it up this way. Being part of God's plan and salvation is an exciting experience. And many of us who have shared the gospel with family members and, and friends know what that's like. We see here we witness the changing hearts. We experience the change in their attitudes. And we celebrate in the changing of their life. As we will see in the subsequent chapters, Paul continues this pattern to preach to the Jews first and then to the others as instructed by God and empowered through the Holy Spirit. And finally, we have the continuance of the Gospel. It says in verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Excited in the midst of persecution with an attitude of thanksgiving, something they had never had but longed for and now through the Holy Spirit were able to experience, not in an emotional way only, but in a new understanding that they hungered for. A new hope for life. A change of heart and mind. A security in the knowledge and understanding of their Lord and Savior. A deep commitment to this gospel, this message. They, Paul, and other disciples, on the bottom there, they entered the city filled by the Holy Spirit. They left the city filled by the Holy Spirit. And they continued to live their lives filled by the Holy Spirit. There are many reasons for rejection, rejection of the gospel. Pride, envy, Jealousy, bitterness, anger, selfishness, and so on. Ask yourself what may have been the obstacle that was in your life the first time you heard the gospel. Mine was loyalty to the church I grew up in. I can't have another belief, another faith, other than what I was raised in. That's, that's a sin, a sin that's unforgiving. But through God's grace, he made his gospel message clear, understood that I am a sinner and I need his forgiveness. There's nothing I can do. There's not enough things that I can do in my own strength that would make him love me less or hate me more. But to surrender my life to him. Have you ever experienced hostility? of the gospel in your life? What did you do? How did you respond? How was your resolve? What will your response to his message be 
If you're here and you haven't heard this message, there's no excuse. It's not my words. It's God's word that you have to wrestle with. It's God's word that you have to be angry at or bitter or jealous or prideful. Not mine. Will your response be to receive and be forgiven or to reject and be condemned? As I said earlier before, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who Jesus is. It's better to do it now because you don't have a chance later. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you are a gracious God, a loving God, a God of provision, a God of strength, a God of guidance, a God of mercy. So much, Lord, we think depends on ourselves, and that's so far from the truth. What you want from us is a surrendering of our hearts, our minds, our wills to you. And Lord, you've made that provision through the message of this gospel. That's why it's called good news. Because without it, there's bad news. So Father, I pray that if any are here that have not put their trust and faith in this good news, Lord, would you quicken their heart through the power of your Spirit. Would you enable them to surrender whatever is in their life that's keeping him from making that decision. Father, you can override that. Because it's by your grace and your mercy that we even have that trust and that faith. So thank you, Father, for encouraging us this morning through your word, not mine. Through others in our world, Lord, that have died for the sake of this good news. That the fire has been fanned and spread and continues. May that be not only in our world, but in our hearts. Lord, we look at this day, this week. Help us, Father, live that life that you have so blessed us with. In Jesus' name, amen.